awesome. Um, so we're continuing our sermon series with the prologue to the Messiah. And so what this is, is we're discussing Old Testament passages that point towards uh, New Testament prophecy being fulfilled. We're pointing towards Christ and his resurrection, building up to um, Christmas time and when we celebrate all that stuff. Um, the one today that I got, or I guess I chose actually, is not a direct prophecy. Um, so this one is like, I'm not going to say like, this was the verse in Numbers and this is how it's absolutely completely fulfilled in the New Testament, but there is some parallels there, and so we're going to focus on that. Um, so we're going to be discussing, um, I guess appropriate to uh, the songs that we just sang, but Christ being lifted up. And the verses we'll be discussing today will be Numbers 21, 6 through 9, a great, fun book. Everybody loves Numbers. And then John 3, 14 through 18. And so these will be the two verses we'll be discussing, talking about the Old Testament prophecy or Old Testament tradition or thing that happened and how it's fulfilled in the New Testament. So numbers, one of the first things you should probably do is not just listen to someone talk about it, we should probably read it. Um, so my translation is the NRSV, the only translation, no, I'm just playing, but uh, this is uh, my preferred translation. So we'll read this real quick and then we'll dissect what this passage is about. So numbers 21, six through nine. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people and they bit the people so that the many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take these serpents away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole. And wherever a serpent bit someone, that person would look to the serpent of bronze and live. So it's a pretty uh, interesting passage, right? Like talking about snakes and people did wrong and they sinned, so then God allowed these snakes to bite them and to kill them, but then he was like, hey Moses, get one of these snakes, or make a bronze snake or a copper snake, uh, make a pool of it, and then if someone gets bit, have them look at it and they're healed. It's a very interesting, almost weird kind of verse. But it's important when we go through this, we have our hermeneutic. Let me go back, I'm on one slide too far. And so hermeneutic in a simple term is our theory of interpretation. We need to know our culture, we need to know the history, we need to know what was going on at that time. And so this passage, as I said earlier, isn't a direct prediction or prophecy, but does give us a glimpse of what the Messiah would be like. So at this time, Israel was en route from Egypt to the Promised Land, and again, God's people became impatient, ungrateful, and rebellious. And so despite God's provision so far, they claimed to be afraid that there would be no water and tired, of this, and tired of having the same food. And so the end conclusion is their fear trumps God's love. And how often does this still happen today, right? We've seen God's provision. Uh, we're like, well, yeah, you've taken care of me. You got me out of this rough situation, but like, I don't like how things are right now. So I'm going to go back to what feels good, what makes me feel comfortable. Or you know what? I'm going to go back to my pagan gods, and we're going to worship that instead. Um, but there's a distinction here, and it's important in our lives that we don't allow the fear of what is to come and the mysteries of the unknown to dictate our reaction to God. But instead, we trust in God that he is mysterious, that we can't fully understand him but our fates or our lives are best left in his hands and his direction than just taking control of it on our own and saying this is what makes me feel safe. And so continuing along with this, uh, the consequence that we see is that God sent, I like using the word aloud, uh, any of you guys that know me, I have a, I'm not a huge fan of wrath theology, um, and so we can have a discussion about that some other time, but I will say that God allowed serpents to bite the people, and some of those people died. Um, when they confessed their sin, Moses prayed to the Lord and, the following, and following God's instruction, made a copper or bronze uh, serpent and placed it on a pole. Anyone who looked at the serpent pole there, thereafter would live from being bitten. So you can already see some of the parallels happening, right? 
There's this thing that is harming you um, that you'll die from unless you look up to this thing, lift it up, that happens to be on a pole. Kind of very similar to this like Jesus guy, right? The, the, the curse of the world, our own sin, the, the poison that kind of is the toxin in our lives um, is in need of salvation. And the salvation comes from Christ being crucified. But not, not just being crucified, the life that he lived, how he entered into the world, the resurrection that he would have and the return that he would have again. Um, we're already seeing glimpses of this. And granted, this is us looking at it from our audience standpoint, from our culture standpoint. We know about this Jesus. When this was written, uh, chances are the author or Moses, when he was making these, like, all right, man, these people are just mad. I'll, I'll do whatever you want. I'll make a pool and throw a snake on it. They're saved. Cool. Let's keep going. You know, he may not have known the depth of what this, the significance of what this would mean. And so, so what? So to some degree, this taught Israel to have faith in God, even if they could not fully understand what he was asking. We have examples of this also in Exodus 12 with the Passover and in Exodus 16 with manna. So in the Passover, this God says, you know, hey, just so you know, kill some lambs, get the blood, put it on your door frames, and you'll be saved from, you know, this calamity that I'm sending. Pretty mysterious, kind of strange, right? That like, okay, so I'm just going to get like lamb's blood and it's going to keep my son or my child from dying. Like that's, that's weird. But it did, you know? But oftentimes... Um, we place our faith in what we understand because it's too uncomfortable for us to have unknowns. And so what could have happened even with this, too, is that the Israelite people uh, at the time, or God's people at that time, well, weren't the Israelites yet, but God's people at that time, they could have very easily been like, okay, this practice is what saved us, right? The fact that I took time to put the blood over the doorways, that's what saved us. God told us to do it, but it was that act that saved us. In the same sense, they could do the same thing with this snake as well, saying, well, okay, putting the snake up there, like doing this ritual is what saved us. But there's a deeper purpose in there. And so on another level, we see this in John 3.14 and 12.32, and also can be found in Isaiah. There we go. So in John 3.14, we hear this. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that's a pretty... Uh, direct parallel. We can see that right there. He makes a distinction of saying, hey, Moses, just as we heard, um, lifted up this snake in the wilderness, and so Christ himself also has to be lifted up. There you go. In John 12, 32, we have, and I, this is Christ, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw my, all people to myself. So here's this thing happening in this parallel happening again, where this idea, this concept, there's no longer this poison from a snake biting you, but this idea of sin, and that all people will be drawn to Christ. You know, pretty cool. Then we have an Isaiah. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. So we have this as well um, from a different book in Scripture, different prophecy in Scripture, drawing to the aspect that this wasn't just one instance for people being bitten by a snake, but also a holistic idea of what Christ would do in redeeming all of creation. And so the parallels with numbers that we have is that no one is spared being bitten as no one is spared with the bite of sin. This is evident in our lives as well. Every single, it wasn't that like certain people were set apart and weren't bitten by the snakes. We don't hear that. We hear that people were bitten, the people that would look upon this would be healed from it. In the same sense, we have this with sin. And granted, understand the concept of what sin is. Sin is not just this evil, nasty thing that like is the opposite of God and stuff. It's missing the mark. Sometimes sin is us choosing or choosing a lesser good or perceiving something is good, but really it's not what God's calling us to do. It's missing the mark. So you could be aiming, the Hebrew culture at the time, it had been like shooting a bow and arrow. And you have your arrow drawn back and you let go of the arrow and it hits the target or it hits what you're aiming at, but it doesn't hit the bullseye. 
that sin. And so when you look at it from that perspective, as opposed to like turning in the opposite direction, just shooting your arrow, you start to see things a little differently. You start realizing that you could have great intentions, but it could still be sinful. It may not be of God. So in the same sense, these people may have been looking to the snake and the idea of, okay, this is what God commanded them to do, but other people may have been looking at it saying, oh, this is this idol, this is what saves me. And so the Israelites could be healed if they looked at the serpent. Anyone could be healed of sin if we look to Christ. This is the other parallel that we see, is that all of creation, all people can be saved. And it's not a matter of how justified your life is or how much that salvation has been worked out in your life. We see that with the thief on the cross. Surely today you'll be spending eternity with me. You'll be in paradise. We have that happening. I think it's a beautiful thing. And so the copper serpent was, um, was the only cure for the poisonous bites, but Christ is the only cure for sin. And we find this in John 14, 6 and Acts 4, 12. And what I'd like to do is challenge you guys to look further into this, not just accepting that, okay, you have to have Jesus, that is the only way, but accepting what does this mean for even eternity? When we're brought before the throne of God, when we're brought before Christ, is that then an opportunity for people to be saved? Challenge your idea of your um, kind of end times theology, the idea of universalism versus annihilationism versus eternal torment and stuff like that. These passages in scripture itself, like this is the love of Christ, right? It is eternal. It transcends all time, space, and matter. And this is the hope that we should have, is that regardless of where someone is in their life, that Christ is present, and there's always an opportunity for restoration. Uh, we actually discussed this in our Bible study today. The idea that Christ doesn't, and God doesn't just punish for the sake of punishment. He doesn't punish because he likes to see people hurt, or just because he's like, oh, you went against me, I'm going to hurt you. No, he punishes for the sake of correctiveness. He always corrects. He always restores. So this has to apply even into our theology for what is to come, not just for now what is to come there on later. And it also changes your perspective too. That doesn't put it on you to have to save people. It's not people looking at you on the stool or up there talking. It's you pointing them to Christ. It's you're saying you're not putting yourself on this pedestal or putting yourself as like this is the thing to look at to be healed or to be saved. You're pointing them to Christ. And so just going off that, the pole itself is not what heals. Just as a cross or pendant or tattoo doesn't save us either. Just because, you know, I have a cross tattoo and stuff like that or you have, you know, Jesus fish or something like that. Not that it's wrong to have those things, but those things inherently aren't what make you a good Christian. They don't inherently save you. They don't inherently make you better. Those can be reflections of that, just as much as the pool can be a reflection of what Christ was to come, and just as much as the cross is a reflection of the salvation, the redemption of all creation. But that wood itself on the cross, that, that thing, that's not what saves us. That's not what heals us. That was simply a thing that was used and that's something we have to humbly admit is that could have God have saved us in another way other than crucifixion you know, or him being crucified? Can he save us in another way? He could have. This is the way that he chose to do it, though. And there's a mystery in that, and we have to be humble enough to acknowledge that we can't fully fathom that. We can't even fully fathom how that fully heals us, too. We can be good theologians and scholars, and we can say, oh, it's a perpetuation of sins, or it was this, this, blah, 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 blah. And those are great things to have and discuss and to work on to build yourself up and build up your faith. But in the same sense, our own understanding is not what saves us. It's not what heals us. It's a surrender. It's an aspect of believing what Christ has proclaimed about himself and surrendering it the same way that Christ did this with the Father when he said, take this cup from me. Christ does this as well. And so, so what with this is that the token of deliverance for the Israelites was the copper serpent through whom God performed the healing. 
In the same way, the token of deliverance today is Christ, through whom we can discover God as the author of our own spiritual healing from sin. Christ was lifted up um, on, for, on the stake, but how that works is beyond our understanding. What I just said a little bit ago is that like, we can believe in Christ. We can believe that it saves us and heals us, and we have eternity with him, and it covers our sin. But how, what all happened on that cross, we can't fully fathom. The idea that something that a person that was fully man and fully God, that alone we can't fathom. We have our human nature. You know, we are who we are. We don't have this deity presence inside of us. And the God of all of creation lowered himself to the point of living a life uh, and crucifying himself on our behalf so that way he could be united with us. We can't fully grasp what that means or how that all works and pans out. Um, but there's peace in that. There's peace in not knowing. There's peace in not having all the answers. That's very hard for our culture, and it's very hard for someone even like myself. Uh, I like to, my, my office in, my, in our house is just like everything is put to a perfect spot to the point that whenever Blade comes over, he'll like move one thing every single time just so I, you know, I'll, I'll recognize and know. Um, but everything is, has a spot. Or I, I like to have kind of like this control over my area because it makes me feel good. It makes me feel at peace. But this is one of the greatest things about God, at least in my relationship with God, is it was the surrender of that. The surrender of like, I just accept that I don't know that much. I accept that you transcend how I am healed, how you cover sin, you know, how you're going to use me. I don't understand why I get the opportunity to be in people's lives, why I get the opportunity to be a part of a plant, of a church plant, why I get the opportunity to have someone come over and watch my kid, you know, that happens to go to our church. Like, why I have a church that said, hey, we appreciate you enough that we want you and your wife to go out and do something. I can't fathom why God enables that love to happen in my life. But it's important that we reflect back and praise him for it, too that we're not just turning to God when we feel the poison in our lives, saying, okay, feel this, or fix this, heal me. But we're turning to him as well from rejoice and response and for the joy that we do have, the health that we have, the family that we have, the grace that he's given us, the mercy that we have. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of this. Regardless if you thank God for mercy on a daily basis, his mercy is still there. The fact that we could ignore him all day, all week, all month, however long, it's still there. His grace is still sufficient and is always present. That in itself is something we can't fully understand. And so, I think I had one more slide. No. And so I want to take it to a little bit deeper. And I'm not going to get too much into this, but further application. Um, something's been on my mind through the past couple of weeks is the idea of self-care, and especially in our culture, how do we define self-care? But I've also noticed that I think a lot of things are misaligned. We call something self-care, and it's actually not that. It's being self-absorbed. And I'd like to have a distinction between that because self-care, um, the diction or the definition that we have is any activity that we deliberately do to take care of our mental, emotional, and physical health. Self-absorbed is preoccupied with one's own feelings, interests, or situation. One requires action of us while the other demands actions for us. It demands that from other people. And it's very easy for these things to get blurry, and I'm not going to go on a big rant about like psychology and like how this works, blah, 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 but I just want us to be aware of this. I want us to be meditating on this uh, when we're going on to communion, is asking yourself, when you have self-care, I asked this to the Malone group uh, last Monday. I said, when you hear the definition self-care, what do you think? What do you do for self-care? Some were like video games, League of Legends, and Destiny. Other were, um, I like just to sleep. And I was like, well, you know, God slept, so that's, that's pretty good. And, but there's a gentleman there, there's an older gentleman, I say older because he's older than me, um, but he said, reading scripture, running, and praying. 
and I thought it was very fascinating to me that all three of his things required effort on his part. The best ability for him to care for himself required an effort of himself, but part of that is acknowledging how much you have to give, how much you have to pour out, and pouring it out into the appropriate things that reap the most reward. And when I say reward, I don't mean money, I don't mean material things, I mean the sense of your own health. You know, your own, kind of if you have a tank of love or the tank of grace that you can pour out into the people around you, investing it into something that can give more than you can handle. Investing that into God to some extent because the cup flows over, but making that dedicated time that you're not too burnt out to spend time with God. That you recognize in order for you to care for yourself that needs to be in action. There has to be some effort on our behalf, but oftentimes the things we do for self-care are things that require nothing of us or if anything, demand of others. And it's really problematic with that. Not that that's wrong altogether, you know, that, but if that's the only thing that we're doing for self-care, it turns into being self-absorbed. We are so caught up in your own feelings, you're so caught up in what's going on in your own personal life, that anything you do for your self-care is only about you. It doesn't transcend into affect other people's life. That's a good kind of thing if you're trying to wrestle through the thought of your mind of, um, is the way I take care of myself something that's glorifying to God? Is every thought being held captive? Is how does it affect other people? It's important that it helps you. It's important that it enables you to be better than the people around you. But how does it affect other people? One of the ways that Chelsea and I do this is with everything that we buy, material, whatever it may be, me making this purchase, how does this affect somebody else? How does this bless somebody else? If it doesn't, I probably shouldn't have it. And so that's one of the things, and again, that's our conviction. That's not the conviction on everybody else. That's not how everybody else ought to live their life. That's one of the things that we're called to do. And so I'd ask that you'd hold that captive. You'd hold that thought captive. Ask yourself, are you really turning to God and allowing him to care for you? Or are you demanding that this is what you want your Jesus to look like and this is how you want this Jesus to care for you? Because if God truly is transformative and he can transform us and he can heal us like he did from people being bit by a snake or even from sin, he has to be given the opportunity to transform. And that transformation is not going to be our definition of what Jesus should look like. It's going to be his definition of whom he is. So this is what I wanted to leave you with. And Zach, you can go ahead and come up with communion. But how are you approaching the cross? How are you approaching this serpent pole, if you will? Are you doing it deliberately with action and surrender? Or are you approaching Christ and you're approaching the cross with demands um, and your own personal understanding? So reflect on that. Zach's going to lead us into a time of communion. I want to pray real quick, and then uh, we'll have you take over the mic back. Heavenly Father, I thank you just for your grace. I thank you just even for myself, Lord. There is some aspect of you that I believe that is wrong, that you still have love for me and work through me and work with me and enable other people to love me. Lord, I pray that as we approach you in this time of the communion, Lord, that we'd recognize that we do need to get up and that you present yourself broken and poured out on our behalf, Lord. And I pray that we would approach the others around us with that same mentality. Lord, I pray that we take the time to take care of ourselves, not just because it makes us feel good, but recognizing, Lord, that you are the one that heals people. You are the one that rescues people and saves people, not us. So I pray that we'd be granted the ears to hear your voice in that time of solitude and pursuing you, the eyes to see the vision that you have, and that we don't force your kingdom, Lord, but we allow you to be glorified, and we allow your kingdom to come in perfect timing. Lord, I pray that we'd be like you, that even within yourself, even in Trinity, Lord, that you have, we're in constant communion with yourself, you would remove yourself away from crowds, not because you were so irritated and hated them, but so that way you could be filled back up within yourself through that dialogue, through that conversation, through your Holy Spirit, through the Father and the Son, Lord, that you enabled yourself to be 
and a proper place to pour back into the people around you. Lord, I thank you that even on the cross, Lord, as we studied several weeks ago, that you quoted Psalms, Lord. You recognized your audience, Lord, and you spoke to them in a way that even as you were dying, Lord, you approached them with grace and mercy. And I pray that would be the case for us too, Lord. I pray that you would keep us safe, if that be your will, but also, Lord, that we would not fight the suffering, that we would not fight the inconveniences, that our faith would not be dictated by what feels good to us or what is convenient for our timing, Lord, but we would surrender that and be okay that maybe this thing is an inconvenience for your glory, but that we'd be turning to you, that we'd have fullness to be able to do that. Lord, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your scripture. I thank you for the prophecies and um, just the rich history that we have through your scripture, Lord. Lord, we thank you and ask these things in your name. Amen.